I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's look in Hebrews chapter 13. If you remember Mother's Day, we were uh, right in the midst of uh, COVID-19 and we were in the book of Ruth and we stayed there on Mother's Day and of course we made application. And so for the fathers today, uh, we're not going to run to a text specifically geared to fathers. We're just going to preach the Bible And we're going to stay right where we were from last week, but we will certainly have some good application uh, in these verses for us. So this is part two of the spiritual sacrifices of praise. And whereas last week we drew from the text the part that we should lift our voices to the Lord in praise, the fruit of lips, today we learn that it's not just vertical, that it's also horizontal when we're actually giving praise to God and or a life, a shared life to God that actually pleases the Lord. And those words, being pleasing to the Lord, should grip all of us. We should all desire to be pleasing to the Lord. And one aspect of that is the fruit of our lips that we lift to the Lord. But a second aspect is that horizontal dimension of doing well, doing good to others and sharing and being generous. And that's what we're going to see today. So the Bible Hebrews 13, beginning in verse 10. Let's get a running start, although we'll only look at verse 16. Uh, a text without context is pretext. You can get in a lot of trouble if you just grab Hebrews 13, uh, chapter 16, and think that um, if you just do good and you share, then you're going to be okay with the Lord. Understand something. Uh, the fact of the matter is, the reason you do the things you do is because you are saved by grace through faith. And that once for all sacrifice has changed your life. Uh, doing moral things will not take you to heaven. Right? So theology is vitally important. We believe even that the biblical mission is simply biblical doctrine faithfully applied. Faithfully applied. That's how you have to see things. Theology is not merely for the academia. Uh, academia. Theology is a matter of the church. And we are starving in our churches today for correct theology. And so correct doctrine and theology needs to drive all of what we do in church life. And we believe that the biblical mission itself is simply biblical doctrine that is faithfully applied. And so we're going to do that as we look at verse 10. Here it is. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify, here it is, to sanctify the people through his own blood. So you're made holy, acceptable before God, justified, whole nine yards before the Lord. How? Through the blood of Jesus alone. In other words, this exclusivity or the exclusive claim to salvation in Jesus functions because of the exclusivity of his authority. All salvation finds its head in in the fact that Christ has all authority. Have you ever thought about the Great Commission? It all begins with all authority has been given to me. Do y'all realize how big that is? It's not Trump's authority. It's not Joe Biden's authority. It's not anyone's authority. It is Christ alone. He has all authority. Thus, go make disciples. So, in essence, the reason salvation is exclusive is because there's only one who has exclusive authority. And that's Jesus Christ. So he says, 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the only way people can be saved. Period. Verse 13, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And then last week, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. In other words, we're not bringing a sacrifice on a leash anymore. What are we bringing to the Lord? We bring the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. And then verse 16 is our our verse for today. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices, say it, are pleasing. To God. Do we want to please the Lord? So in Hebrews 13, here's what you learn. We learn that Jesus Christ changes lives. And if you just start reading beginning in chapter 13, verse 1, you're going to see the ramifications of a life that has been changed by grace through faith. You, you know what forgiveness of sin is. Therefore, you let brotherly love continue. You don't neglect hospitality for strangers. Uh, you remember those in prison. Uh, you treat the marriage bed as undefiled. Hello? Right? But God will judge fornicators and adulterers. You keep your life free from the love of money. You're content with what you have. You see, these are evidences that you have been saved. And these are acceptable acts of worship to the Lord. Remember chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable. Now, that defines something. That there is worship to God that is not acceptable. Are y'all listening? But there's acceptable worship. One happens to be the fruit of lips that praise Him. But also a lifestyle. As we've learned in the songs that we sung today. Christ living in and through us. So, when the Holy Spirit comes to us and he brings conviction into our lives, this is what he does. In no uncertain terms, he lets you see the gravity of your sin and your need for Christ. And you begin to say, if Jesus doesn't do this, I'm done. There's no way I can be saved. And then on the flip side, the Holy Spirit convicts you of the sufficiency of Jesus. Now, how is it that God convicts you of your need, right? He sees the sufficiency. You begin to see the sufficiency of Christ to change your life and no other way to be saved. What welds that together? The Bible says it's called faith. God begins to work faith in your heart so that he puts in your mind. He welds together your absolute utter need for Christ, and he puts that together with you seeing the sufficiency and the beauty of Christ, of which you cannot see unless God opens your eyes. And so once you do that, it's well together by faith that God works in your heart, and you see how precious Jesus is. So I want to remind you that our church doesn't need rehabilitation. We don't need reformation. Our 10 10 steps for better living, what we need is Jesus Christ. He changes everything. He changes everything in life. So When the Holy Spirit links up our dire sense of need with the saving grace of Jesus, we're set free. It means that we are set free, not just from doing bad things. And you do have the power living in you through the Holy Spirit of God to say no to certain things, and you should. But how about the power in our lives that liberates us to love and to serve and to give? In other words, you need to see both sides of this. Transformation, yes, 
of the negative where we say no to certain things, but a transformation to the positive where we love and we serve and it changes our lives. In other words, it turns us in to true worshipers of the true and living God. Remember 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 through 10. Paul says, we know what manner of entry we had unto you, how that you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son who's returning. So think about that. You're saved by turning to God from idols, but you're saved unto service. Isn't it interesting that Paul says to the Thessalonican Christians that once you trust Christ, It is the saving in your heart that transforms you into wanting to be a servant and do that which is good. So this is what the writer is talking about when he says Jesus suffered outside the camp to purify a people unto himself, to set us free to worship and to make us into generous people who love him and serve him. Last week, we saw our identification with him and the reproach that we gladly bear. What did we say? In order to be saved, you have to go outside of all religious systems. And there's only one person that saves, and that's Jesus. You go outside the camp, much like, again, that sacrificial lamb, the carcass was taken outside of the camp. But we go out to Jesus alone, right? And we, re- we take that reproach gladly. We identify with him completely. And then there's this fruit of the lips. But remember, worship is not only verbal fruit of lips. It is also consistent, practical service to God, right? So our sacrifices are not only praise to God, but deeds of love. So the gospel sets us free from selfishness. It sets you free from materialism. Oh, and does our world need to hear this? It sets us free from racism. Don't y'all understand that the gospel is the only thing that can change a heart? You can do moral law all day long. But, it, but that's going to take you straight to hell apart from Jesus, right? The gospel alone is what changes your worldview and the consistency of how you view things. But not only racism, but how about covetousness and greed? It sets us free from those things. It also empowers us to give and to serve and to love. So there is another sacrifice that we bring to God. Not just the fruit of our lips, but we are to bring to God a life that is shared. A shared life. And I've talked... I've taught this since I've been here. It'll be four years in July. We are to live life together under the word. And that means you have a shared life. And only one division, I almost feel like I'm cheating you today. Only one major sermon division, right? Here it is. We are to offer the sacrifice of a shared life. Let's dig in and break break down this one single verse. Now again, you can't take this in isolation apart from context. That would be dangerous. You know what this verse says in isolation? Be nice and charitable, and God will be happy with you. If we just read that, think about this. Don't neglect to do good and share what you have, and such sacrifices are pleasing to God. If you read this out of context, you're going to come away, and you're going to think, well, all I have to do to please God is to be nice and charitable, and God's going to be happy. Well, this is not a faith-based charity message that I'm preaching to you. This is a gospel sermon. That's why the divisions, the, the subpoints in the sermon say gospel-driven. If you look down in your bulletin, when we break this down, that's why it says gospel-driven. The gospel does more than just forgive your sins. It transforms you and your heart, and it turns you into a different kind of person. So the writer knows this congregation. It is the gospel that changed them. It's not do good 
and God is going to be pleased. It is the fact that God has done something good for you, right? He's transformed your heart, and he saved you. Therefore, based upon that, we're called to do good. But he knows this congregation, doesn't he? Do y'all think the writer knows the congregation he's writing the book to? Say yes, right? He does. He knows his congregation. He knows their history. He knows their practice. If the church had a major strong point, it was the way that they loved and cared for each other. The gospel for, the, for these Hebrews Christians was lived out horizontally like it was supposed to. They took care of each other. Let me show you. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and your love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So the congregation knew how to be involved in the lives of people. Would you all agree? They knew what it was like to suffer together for the gospel. They were persecuted for the gospel. Remember, they had come out of Judaism. And there was that propensity and inclination to go back to the law as a means of salvation. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't do that. And they were suffering. They were, they were called every name in the book for leaving Judaism and trusting Christ. They knew what it was like to suffer. And, and, and the writer reminds them, you suffered along with one another. When there was a conflict, they entered into it with their brothers and sisters. They were willing to lock arms when it came to suffering for Christ. This was a healthy community of faith. Loved each other served each other, and they were generous. But do y'all notice what the writer says? Don't neglect these things. You know, it's very easy for us to forget the things that we do well. Isn't it? Folks, we all need to be reminded uh, that the things that we do well, it's easy to forget that, and we, then we begin to neglect those things. So it's not like this congregation didn't know how to love and to serve. They knew how to do those things. But the writer finds it necessary to say to them, don't neglect these things. That's how the chapter begins. Let brotherly love continue. They were loving each other. Let it continue. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And thereby some, uh, some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison. So they were doing these things well. But the writer says, don't forget to do those things. Now, application here. We don't need to take for granted what we do well as a church. And I think we do well when it comes to looking for the needs of our brothers and sisters in this body and doing whatever it takes to reach out to meet those needs. I think we do well, but we don't need to forget how important it is to continue to do those things. Why? Because it is well-pleasing to the Lord. When there is a need, we meet it through the generosity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's a strong point to this body. But just because we've done it in the past doesn't mean we'll continue it in the future if we're not mindful. Remember the church of Ephesus? When Paul wrote them in the 60s, 60 AD, uh, man, what a vibrant church in love with Jesus. Doctrine led to practicality and living out the gospel for Christ. But when you get to the book of Revelation and Jesus speaks to the church of Ephesus, what does he say? I have this one thing against you that you have lost your first love. So let's be very, very careful as a church to keep in mind that we need to be living a life, a shared life. And I want to remind you of something. Are y'all listening? It's a sacrifice to do this. It's a sacrifice unto God to lift your lips to him. But it's also a sacrifice of God for our church to enjoy a shared life. In other words, it will cost you 
in order to share your life with others so that you can be pleasing to the Lord. Not to gain salvation, but as a result of the fact that you've already been transformed by grace through faith. I hope you understand you can't please God, period, without Christ. You cannot please God apart from the once-for-all sacrifice for your sins. It is categorically impossible to worship or please God apart from Jesus. It can't happen, according to the Bible. So, there are two things that we must not neglect, according to verse 16. All right, here they are. Do not neglect to do good, and secondly, to share what you have. Think about this. Are y'all listening? For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Now, that's where the rubber hits the road. Do we want to please God? I'm telling you, if you're saved, then you went from a place of no understanding at all of what it means to please God. If your heart has been redeemed, then all of a sudden, that should be your life vocation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, I make it my aim to do always that which pleases Christ. And that happens from a transformation in us. So first, we should have a gospel-driven desire to do good. Again, this is probably a summary of things that have been previously said. Like, for instance, don't neglect hospitality. Don't neglect prisoners. He has told them, keep the marriage bed undefiled. He's told them to to have a character that is free from the love of money. Well, well well-doing or to do good has the idea of acts of kindness that are concrete expressions of concern that we have for people. It seems to be broad in its term, terminologies, but our terminology, but it has to do with meeting the needs of others and being kind. We could stand some of that, couldn't we? It's to do something for someone that is good and beneficial. Now, folks, listen, this is not the bumper sticker cliche of please practice random acts of kindness. Nor is it the moralism or it for if you want to do good, you have to be good. The moral implication is that Jesus Christ is the only one that is good, right? Because he is good, we now do good to others. I mean, keep it theologically centered. In other words, this is a gospel-centered ethic in Christianity. The gospel compels us to tangibly show love and concern for others. Now listen, the gospel is awesome. That vertical dimension of the fact that God has forgiven you For Christ's sake is amazing. He's washed you. He's cleansed you. He's set you free. But there's also a a horizontal dimension that is connected with the vertical. Are y'all getting this? That horizontal aspect of being connected to the vertical aspect of knowing you're saved and you're in Christ. At At this point, understand the Bible is absolutely clear that if you don't have it in here, right? If you don't have it out here then you don't have it right up there. Does this make sense? It's not just the vertical. Well, I've been saved by grace through faith on my way to heaven. This is to be lived out practically in life that we do good to others. In Peter's sermon in the house of Cornelius, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him. I want to ask you a question. If you're saved, is God with you? Now, I know there's some nuances of that verse that may not be active in our world today through the power of the Holy Spirit. That may be the case. Certain healings, right? Certain manifestations. uh, Certain things God closed the door on for a certain amount of time. I get that. But if we belong to Jesus, and he's absolutely good, and he went around doing good for others, should we not? 
Should we not? Is this good for fathers? Who should be the greatest servant in the home? You! Right? The greatest servant in the home ought to be fathers. Why? Because Ephesians 5 tells you you should be. Right? You should be that servant that washes your wife with the water of the word. And not only that, but you should be that kind of servant to your children. Right? So, how are we doing in America as American Christians in doing good? I don't think we're all that good about going about and doing good. And I want to say this. I don't want to offend anybody, but the fact is, in many ways, our government has squelched this out of the American church in order for us to do good. It's usurped and supplanted the church's role in society of actually doing good. Sometimes we don't even think about doing good because there's so many social programs, things like welfare. I want to remind you that this is not, according to the Bible, the, 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 this is not the government's job to do. According to the Bible, it's the people of God's job. In, eight, in the 1830s in Scotland, there was, an increasing, there was an increasing amount of governmental programs to take care of the orphans and the widows and the poor and the elderly. Thomas Chalmers, you ever read about this guy? He was a great Scottish preacher of the 19th century. And he stood up and he said, no, we can't keep doing this. This is the church's job. So he started developing ministries in his church in Glasgow. And it became so efficient that it was called Chalmers Social Machinery. They took care of widows and orphans. And they basically put the government out of a job. Amen! Wouldn't that be good? If the church functioned as it should, you know, as God's representatives on earth, reflecting the very image of Christ in us, it is our responsibility to do good. Y'all got that one? I only have one more. Here it is. We should have a gospel-driven practice of Christian fellowship. Notice the text. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Anybody want to take a stab at what the definition or term share is in this text? Shout it out loud. If you read your bulletin, you know. Point two under division one in your bulletin. What does it say? It is koinonia. You know, I've seen youth groups named koinonia and sometimes they were named koinonia and all they did was eat brownies right and they hung out uh, because that's what baptists believe koinonia is but the esv uses a participial phrase of sharing but the, in actuality it is the word koinonia it is the literal word fellowship now this means coffee and brownies right it does that's what we think when we read this, we want to say, don't neglect the brownies. <laughs> not anything about sharing and doing good, but we don't want to neglect the brownies. This is not what he has in mind. Baptists have done an incredibly good job at tainting the word koinonia. It has nothing to do with potluck. Howbeit, I like potluck. <laughs> All right? But that's not what this word means. Allow me to show you some of the koinonia passages real fast. Romans Flip there. Hold where you are. Go back to Romans. Go over to Romans chapter 12, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Wow, that's good stuff. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. 
Be constant in prayer. Uh-oh, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Y'all know what that word is? Koinonia. There it is. It's going to cost you something, right? Isn't it amazing what we find in the Bible when we read it? When we find out what the words mean and we study it. Verse 13, there it is. Contribute. Uh-oh. Everything sounded good until I got there, right? That means it's going to cost. It's going to be a shared life before people. Contributing is the way that it's translated, yet it's the word koinonia. Chapter 15, verse 26, in the same book of Romans. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. What's the word? There it is, koinonia. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter eight. Verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is going to be connected directly to nine thirteen. Listen to this, to speed up. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of their contribution for them and for all others. There are so many other verses I could go to. But folks, here's the real issue of koinonia. It's a shared life. It is, it is contributing. It is, it is giving. And I know that's not just finances. There are tons to say about that. But what about your life? Uh, that means your talent, uh, your, the thrust of your life, uh, your treasure, surely. But the idea of koinonia is a shared life. At the very heart is the fact that you make material things available to others who have need. The basis, this is based upon our partnership and our union with Jesus Christ the Lord. Think about this. You are related to this person through a bond that is forged together by the Holy Spirit of God. And you have koinonia, fellowship with this person that is rooted in the gospel. That's how this is fleshed out. There, in other words, we see contributing, we see sharing, we see meeting needs. This is what the body of Christ looks like. And we don't need to neglect this as a church. We need to put the pedal to the metal. We need to press the gas even more in this issue of living a shared life here at FBCO. This is clearly what you see in Acts, 20, Acts 2 verse 44 when it says, And everyone that had a need, that need was met. Can you imagine a church family like that? When a person had a need, that need was met. That's exactly what's going on here. So the writer says, don't neglect this kind of fellowship. In other words, our love should not be in word only but also in truth and deeds. It would be real easy for us to stand in here and lift our lips to the Lord and praise Him with our lips and go out and lift up Jesus with your lips and tell others about Jesus vocally, verbally. But what if you never ever act in this body in a shared life to give and to contribute and to share and to think of needs of others? There's a word for that, and that's called 
Hypocrite. Bless you, O my Father, and never look for a need in someone else's life. That doesn't work. That doesn't, that doesn't cut the mustard. You ever use that word up here in the north? We'd say that in the south. That doesn't fit. That dog won't hunt. Oh, bless you, O Lord. I praise you. But I'm not going to give a dime to the church. Or I'm not going to give an ounce of my time to, to meet a need in someone's life. That doesn't work. That, that, that doesn't fit what the Bible says. So, in fact, without these expressions, our kindness, of kindness, our praise lacks integrity. Makes sense. If it hasn't changed your heart, uh, it's not going to come out in, in acts that bring God glory. So without the tangible expression on a horizontal level of ministering to people and seeking to meet their needs and entering to what we would call here a shared life, then our vertical praise directed toward God is very empty. If it doesn't come out to practical acts that we do, something's wrong. Got it? Now notice how he ends. This is an incredible statement. This, I pray, will grip you. What is the priority of your life? What is important to me? What is the goal of my life? What do I and you do actually every single day in this realm? What drives us? What grips us? And here it is. To share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I have a question for you fathers on Father's Day. Is that your desire to be pleasing to God? Is it your desire to be pleasing to the Lord? The Puritans used to have an old adage, and it went something like this. May my greatest desire be my father's smile, and my greatest fear be his frown. We need to, cap we need to capture that thought, don't we? How often do we think like this? Paul says it again, 2 Corinthians 5, 9. We make it our aim to be pleasing to the Lord. So my heavenly father is pleased when I share and I do good. He's pleased when I am generous. He's pleased when I am kind. But think about this. The sacrifices of doing good and sharing with others is based upon a life that has been changed by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Again, let me reiterate. Doing good and sharing with others will not save you. But doing good and sharing with others after you've been saved by grace through faith, of the, through the one sacrifice of Christ for all time, when you act based upon that sacrifice and what God has done in your life, then those things are pleasing to God. And we want to please the Lord. The sacrifices of praise and good works and generosity that are well-pleasing to the Lord are well-pleasing because they flow through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. There is no acceptability before the Father except through Christ. So isn't it awesome to think that your sacrifices, your kindness, your generosity actually pleases the Father as it flows through the Son of God who lives in you? It is therefore pleasing to God. Our Heavenly Father says, do good and share, and I'm going to give you everything you need to do good and share. Isn't that awesome? He gives you exactly what you need to please Him. Uh, Father's Day. When my children were small, and maybe even sometimes now, we do the same thing. But have you ever paid for the gift you were given? <laughs> I mean, I've done this so many times. But it pleases me. I mean, the fact that my children give it to me even though I bought it. Now, Merritt bought me a, a... I came in yesterday afternoon, and there was a big old Glendale target to shoot my bow into. I was like a little kid. I was like, man, that's awesome. I'm ready to shoot that. He bought it with his own money. That's pretty good, too. But look, the way the Father works with us, 
He says to us, do good and share. And I'm going to give you everything you need to be good and to share. That's literally what he does. And why does he do it? Because all things are of him and by him and for him. And all the glory doesn't go to humanity. None of it goes to us. All the glory goes to Jesus. So I'm going to provide the heart change. Think about this, folks. If you're lost today, you can't do these things apart from Jesus. But the Father says, I'm going to give you the heart change in order for you to be able to do good. And the gift that I give you is the Son of God. And He'll give you the ability to see things differently. He'll give you the ability to sacrifice. And He'll give you the ability to please the Father. And all of this, He's the one who gives the strength and the abilities. And He does all these things so that He Himself receives the glory. In chapter 20, uh, the writer actually... Uh, or verse 20, the writer is going to expound upon this even more. Look at it. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That's good theology. I mean, you're not a lone ranger. This is not just to do good and, and work your way to heaven. Don't you understand, folks? It's the Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd of the sheep that came forth from the dead that empowers you to live for him. Without him, you can't do it. As a matter of fact, you can't even be equipped. And, and if people are running around doing good, just think about this. Is, is running around doing good pleasing to God? No, not unless he's equipping you to do it. Are y'all getting this? That's why it's so important to think theologically. Now, some of you want to say this. Well, oh, let me back up, and we're going to finish. This is a command, by the way. It's in the imperative mode. Do not neglect to do good. That's a command. Do not neglect to share. Now, for some of you, you're thinking, well, preacher, uh, I don't have the gifts to do good. Baloney. You do. Right? What, what if I'm sitting right here, and I don't want to share, and I don't want to do good? I'm too busy. Somebody else in the church has the gift to do that. Can I ask you a question? You're not going to get mad at me. Could it be that your priorities are ganked up? Really? I mean, if you're a believer and you're sitting there and you're saying, well, I don't really want to share, I don't really want to give, I don't really want to contribute, it, there's, a good, there's a good chance in America right now that our priorities are not what they're supposed to be. Right? So think about this. If the eternal perspective doesn't find its way into your priorities then we need to examine our spiritual condition. If the eternal priorities of treasures built up in heaven instead of on earth does not come into your mind and your heart, then you need to think about your spiritual condition. You may say this morning, Lord, I want to be all these things, but I'm poor. Lord, if I could just win the lottery. If you win the lottery, by the way, give the first 10% to the church, right? <laughs> no, seriously, think about this. If I just won the lottery, I could give. 2 Corinthians 8, the Macedonians were set up as an example to the, to the church uh, there in Corinth who was rich and powerful, had all the money in the world, but they wouldn't give anything. And he sets the Macedonian church up as the example because out of abject poverty, poverty, they gave. And that was pleasing to God. When are you ever going to understand that to give 10 bucks when you don't have anything is so much more than to give 100 when you could have given 1,000? God knows the heart. He knows your bank account. Well, he also knows your life of service to him and the excuses we make. 
not to contribute and not to serve. Uh, we have needs all the time, right, Chris? We, we have needs of Sunday school teachers. Now, I know some of you sitting out here have the gift of teaching, but you just sit on your hands. We have needs in the preschool. Boy, I'm going to get extra pay, right, Jennifer? Yeah. I, I like to eat at Godfather's. Give me a, a certificate. We, we got needs in the preschool. By the way, let me just tell you. If we don't have preschool help starting in, on the 5th of July, then we can't offer preschool. Thus, that means that our young families probably can't come to church. Are y'all listening? We got to have help. I mean, it's, it's true. And, and we can do these things. You get up here and preach the sermon, I'll go to the nursery. I mean, the people down in that nursery are just as important as the person standing up here doing the sermon when it comes to the body of Christ. We need each other. We, we need people to serve and to pick up, right? And to do these things. Amen. All right. Now, you can write a check. I get that. But is that enough? That's the way we view things. But the question are, is this. Are you involved enough in the life of this church to see the needs in other people's lives? Sometimes that's hard to do if you're a Sunday morning only. I'm not condemning you. But if we don't live life together, you don't see a need. You can't tell that your brother's struggling. And, and by the way... Uh, if there was more community life here, then people would probably not be so scared to walk up and say, Brother, I'm struggling. I don't know if I'm going to make my house payment next week. And for you not to tell us, it's called pride too. Right? How dare you let your family suffer when you know this church can help you and you just keep your mouth shut. That's a sin as well. Right? And I know people take advantage of the church. But let me just go ahead and tell you, God gives us the sermon and he helps us all the way. Right? You might burn us once, but you won't burn us twice, okay? And we have to trust the Lord in those areas, right, Rick? We do. We have to trust God sometimes. So here's the deal. Our culture so privatizes that we don't want to know anything, and we don't want to tell anything, but that's not the way God designed the church, all right? I want to remind you that you're a part of this body if you're saved by grace through faith. It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has nothing to do with social economic class. We don't become a part of the body of Christ. You didn't bring anything into this world that would gain you access into the kingdom of God. And I want to remind you, it's not about color. It's not about race. It's about grace. And you become part of this body when you trust Christ and you join this Christian fellowship. It drives me up the wall, some of the interviews I've heard of church growth experts. Here's what they say. Uh, they were asked on one occasion, why don't we have more house churches? More small groups. And here's what the person said. Well, before we got into the ministry, some of us were doctors and lawyers and businessmen. And when we got into the ministry, we brought those values with us. And we want to lead growing churches with professional people and church administrators and healthy budgets. We want to run organizations that are polished. <laughs> right? The only background you bring with you into the body of Christ was this. I once was lost but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Sinners are sinners, and what binds us together is not socioeconomic levels, cultural ties, and background. What binds us together is the old rugged cross. Amen. That's it. That's what binds us together. Live a little bit, folks. Get to know one another in this church. That's the secret of having community life like we should. We all have this in common. Jesus Christ saved me from my sins. 
Now we have that in common if you're saved, right? Our atonement has been accomplished. So doing good and sharing doesn't add one thing uh, to you being saved at all. It, 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 your acceptability before God is Jesus Christ alone. The sacrifice has already been made. Yet the response of our hearts to this sacrifice is one of praise from our lips and doing good and sharing with others. And all that overflows out of us because of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And here's my deal. The world can have every bit of its riches. Just give me Jesus. Right? He makes all the difference. All right? God bless you. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for your word. Lord, I needed to hear this. Lord, we all wrestle in our times that we're in with being biblically accurate. We cannot let the world pry the word out of our hands and hearts. We must be theologically sound people. We must think through biblical doctrine so that we don't have stinking thinking. It's real easy to have wrong thinking when we're not led with a consistent biblical understanding of the world and people and what you're doing. God, help us have the big picture that redeemed hearts through Christ is the answer. And Lord, uh, help us uh, to share the gospel, uh, to have uh, lips that bring you praise, the fruit of lips and reverence to you, acceptable worship, but also, Father, help us with a shared life of doing good for others and sharing what we have. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.